You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Joe Biden is at a major cash disadvantage. Nationally, he's down about five points and is doing poorly in swing states. And Trump was just endorsed by most every newspaper across the country. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both blew their debates with not only being unprepared, but by being erratic and interrupting the president and vice president for the entire duration. Oh, and this just in. Donald Trump wins the presidency of the United States. Unbelievable. So yeah, none of what I just said is true. In fact, quite the opposite. But if you're not thinking that way and using your time to work for the Biden campaign to ensure a victory, you are driving pedal to the metal directly into 2016 all over again. So today, we're going to show you the best way to connect with Americans in these last 14 days to ensure massive voter turnout and Donald Trump sitting on the curb of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue wondering, what the hell just happened? A few months back, I had a thought. Well, more than a thought, the beginnings of a plan. What if the theater community and theater people alike came together and used what they inherently have within them? that activist voice. And what if we use that voice and those powers to keep the House, take the Senate, and win back the presidency this fall? And what if I put together a limited series where every other week we give you an action plan and an artist slash activist to inspire you to go out and get to work? Well, let's do it. I'm Eric Uyoa and this is Do You Hear the People Sing? A theater person's guide to saving democracy. Oh, and if you're here to reelect Donald Trump, you're in the wrong fucking place. Now look, this is not news to anybody. We all have deep, 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 deep emotional trauma when we think of that horrific night in November of 2016. In fact, here in New York, the next day was literally the grayest day I'd seen in a while with a light drizzle all day, like a funeral drizzle all day long. The gods knew. I, I will tell you, I will tell you a personal story of of that night, just how just how poorly everything turned around on what was supposed to be a celebration. So we all, as we saw, thought that Hillary Clinton had this in the bag. Every prediction in the book said she had it in the bag. Everything we knew, every poll we read. So I threw a giant election party in my home, my apartment. I decorated the inside and the outside to match a common theme that Donald Trump was touting about Mexican immigrants and to play on his bullshit. And so as you entered my election night party, my front door was done to look like a border wall with metallic paper with a sign on it saying, warning, beyond here are bad hombres. When you walked in, there was crepe paper on the walls, Mexican music playing. We had a full fiesta in here, taco bar, margarita bar, everything, celebratory, celebratory. We had a cutout of Hillary Clinton in the corner wearing a Mexican sombrero because we were celebrating the fact that this asshole was never going to see the White House and never going to see his racist actions put into effect in any way at all. Well, I found out shortly after that I was throwing the most expensive, quick put together funeral of all time. As they, in fact, when they called Ohio, the Hillary Clinton cutout, her neck snapped over the weight of the sombrero and fell off. And that was pretty much an omen for everyone to flee my apartment. And I had bottles of tequila here for about a year after. That's why I'm telling the story is because of the fact that that's how the false sense of security destroyed us the last time. 
Now we have from this day on 14 days to do something about it. 14 days to never repeat those errors. 14 days to not be so proud and wise and smart about it that we are running, like I said, into that wall of 2016. So what are we going to do about it? These last days, we can connect to voters. The best way to connect to voters in this last day are phone banking and text banking. So let's start off with where to go, first of all. So there are many ways to do phone banking and text banking for different candidates, congressional, if it's uh, local elections. All that is at your fingertips via Google. Guys, it's super, super easy to do this. I, I, you all know this by now. But let's start off where to go for the uh, the Joe Biden campaign. I'll help you out with that. Uh, if you want to go to make calls and be a phone banker, you would go to www.joebiden.com backslash call for calling voters. And then www.joebiden.com backslash text for texting voters. Um, each one is different. It depends on your form of engagement. If you're somebody who's not a phone talking person, sign up for the texting. Uh, I know myself personally. I like to talk on the phone. I like to engage. And so I, in the past, when I've worked for um, Obama's campaign and doing phone banking on both elections, I did the phone banking. And I found that, you know, that was my method and my form of getting into it because that's what I knew I would succeed at best. Um, there's a few tips when you are phone banking and text banking. I'm going to take you into phone banking stuff because text banking, they give you the material, you text it out, and the job's basically done. There are a few here that coincide with text banking, and I'll let you know of those, but most of these are in the idea of phone banking. So this could sound really silly, but role play with a partner. Truly, have somebody pretend to be the other caller because I would say eight out of 10 times, you're going to get somebody's voicemail. We live in the era of screening the call. I know on my phone, if I don't know what that number is, I assume it's a timeshare, some kind of fraud, or someone asking me about an election campaign. And so I usually let it go to voicemail. But there are the times that people will pick up the phone and you will have to engage. So be ready to engage. Role play with a partner. Give different scenarios so you know how to handle it. And you know how to get yourself in and out of the conversation during all of it. Most times you are just reminding them to vote. Most times you're just on there to say, hey, do you know tomorrow's election day? Well, that's fantastic. Or hey, do you know today's election day? Do you know your polling location? Because I have it here in case you're not sure. You'll give them the information. You'll tell them where to vote. And you'll send them on their way. Most times they know this. They've already voted but you are just making sure that they are reminded today's election day and you're making sure to get them out into the right location. Guys, stay positive. Stay positive. Remember, you are a tool of the campaign at this point. You are representing the campaign. If you care about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, you are the face of them in this moment. You are calling to represent them, their platform, their beliefs, all of that in this phone call. So stay positive. Stay positive. You are not there for yourself. You're not there to argue about what you personally believe. If they start to fight back with you, do not get into arguments. Do not get into arguments. You will hear every campaign tell you the same. Do not get into arguments. This goes for texting too. It actually hurts the campaign. It hurts the campaign. And these last two weeks, the last thing we need to do is hurt any voter that is potentially, I don't know how, but still on the fence. And guys, lastly, look, make it personal. Make it personal. If, if they talk about something to you that, that strikes a chord in you, make it personal. Don't forget, this is a conversation. This is like talking on the phone with somebody. Make it personal. Bring up things. If you're talking about the Affordable Care Act and you had uh, a, a something that was, that was uh, taken away from you or a loss of life or, or a success story because of the Affordable Care Act, you know, tell that story. Talk to them. Tell them why it's personal to you. Tell them why it matters. You know, those things 
change people's minds. The more personal you go, people find a universality and that's specific. I've talked about it on the podcast before. You know, specifics create universality. We all find ourselves in each other's pain and victory and everything else in between. So look, head to those two addresses. If you're going to work for congressional campaigns or anything below ticket there, please, please spread the wealth. Continue to work. Every moment you have from now, these last 14 days should be in helping all of these campaigns you can. We do so much stuff we don't need to do. Let's just really focus on these 14 days so that we can relax come November 4th or the week after, whenever we figure it all out due to all the mail-in ballots, we can relax, take a breath, and just get ready for this next transitional period and know that our country is back in the hands of adults. <laughs> At the very start of the series, I mentioned that the spark of activism first ignited in me after the Sandy Hook school shooting and how after multiple trips to Newtown, the interviews I collected became the material for my play 26 Pebbles. The trips I had made and the idea to create a play with dialogue straight from these interviews was nothing new. Theater that features dramatized reenactments of actual events and that uses real interviews or transcripts as dialogue for their characters has a tremendous capability for activism. Because via the emotional power of theater, they offer an incredible opportunity to change hearts and minds by merely presenting real life on stage. And today we have perhaps the most famous master of this, my friend and fellow Latino playwright, Moises Kaufman. Hello, Eric. Hello, my friend. How are you? Good. How are you? It's good to have you on here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I was so excited. We, uh, you know, I was thinking we're, we're in the final two episodes now and you and I have been working together on, you know, stuff for Viva Broadway and stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have to have Moises on. He literally uh, inspired what inspired me. Oh, wow. Thank you. You've had such an incredibly diverse career in so many facets of the theater world, but today I want to focus on the power of theater inspired by real-life events and the activism that comes when you're able to assemble these stories into a dramatic narrative that changes hearts and minds. So first of all, I want to start with, uh, let's go back to Laramie. Yeah. Um, so the Laramie Project, you know, a landmark piece of theater. I think most everybody listening to this will know what that is. If not, Google Laramie Project buy a copy and have your life changed. When did the spark of heading over to Laramie first happen in you? And why did that spark happen? Well, um, you know, Matthew Shepard was a young gay uh, student at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, right? And he, one night he went to a bar to have a drink and two guys approached him and they said, uh, we're also gay, uh, come with us. So he left the bar with them. Um, they... Uh, had a truck. He sat on the front seat of the truck with each one of the two guys on either side. And as soon as they were inside the truck, he said, they said, um, we're not gay and we've just kidnapped you. Um, and they took him to a desolate area in the outskirts of the town of Laramie. They tied him to a fence. They beat him unconscious uh, with the butt of a gun and they left him there to die. The next day, um, uh, a um, student from the University of Wyoming was going on a bike ride and he stumbled upon Matthew and uh, then he was taken to a hospital and six days later he died uh, on October 12th. That was two days ago. So 22 years ago, two days ago, uh, he Matthew Shepard died. And so at first we, we heard it, the world heard about it when he was found, right? Because he was tied to a fence. And uh, we all heard about it. And we spent the next six days uh, praying for his recovery and hoping that he would recover. 
Um, and there were a lot of vigils around the country and people really took to the streets about this. There was something about the image of that boy tied to that fence that really struck a chord. So I, I, I was, when I first heard about it, I was very upset, obviously. But in the days that followed, what really struck me was that you couldn't open a newspaper or turn on the television or the radio or the internet without seeing something about Matthew Shepard. Now, at the time, there were a thou- over a thousand anti-gay crimes committed every year. And for some reason, this one resonated. This one was the one where the country paid attention, right? Uh, we were at a place, right, in 1998 where we could think about why is this happening, right? I think yeah. the years before that, people would not have paid attention and, you know, homophobia was rampant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in 1990, homophobia was still rampant, but at least there was much clearer awareness of civil rights in that respect. So I thought, well, Tectonic Theater Project is an experimental theater company. And we thought, why don't we go to the town of Laramie, talk to the people of the town and see if there is a play there. Right. And my hunch was that that if we went and we talked to the people there, we might gather a document that that would serve as an X-ray of not only how the town of Laramie was feeling and thinking about this, but how the whole country was thinking and feeling about this. And not only about homophobia, right, but about violence and about religion and about civil rights and about how do we live up to the social contract that is democracy. So that's why we decided to go to Laramie, to to try and see if there was a play there. And we got there. We spent 10 days there. We conducted interviews with people. And then we came back and we decided, yes, there's definitely a play there, a play that chronicles the life of this town, uh, you know, in the year after Matthew Shepard's death. So over the course of the next year, we kept going back to the town and we... um, and we, you know, we can going back and forth. And then after the trial of the second perpetrator, uh, we said, OK, this is it. We have we have to finish the play now. And we wrote the play. You know, it, it really is. Uh, it, it's it's interesting how the world works. And I think we kind of saw uh, um, we, I know we did, I don't think we did. We saw the same kind of moment, uh, you know, with George Floyd this summer, a moment where the where the country finally seems to start paying attention. And right. saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not right. We are not this. And we kind of wake up, you know, sometimes, you know, centuries too late, decades too late, but we at least wake up. And there's something about Matthew Shepard, uh, you know, it's a perfect storm of uh, the idea that I think, you know, we maybe we, uh, you know, we had just kind of come over the hump of the AIDS crisis and lost so many gay men, you know, and 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 saw a lot of needless death in that you know uh the idea that he he was a young a young man he looked like a boy you know he, he could be anybody's boy and, and and the fact that you know i think for our community too how many times do you not go home with somebody from a bar i mean that's that's what anybody does when they go out with somebody at a bar you, you know that you everyone has that night or those nights and right. i think all those together what do you find with this outside of our community strikes a heterosexual community on, on a human level that they find themselves within this and empathy. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic question, right? Why, why this, did this crime get that attention and not the thousand, the 999 other crimes? Right? Yeah. Why this one? 
and I think that that you're correct. You know, these are I think it's what what are watershed moments in our history, right? Where things really change and change the perception of a whole of the whole society of the whole country. And I think you mentioned two very, very, very important things, right? One was that he was very young. He was very photogenic. You know, you saw that picture, and even though he was 21, he would look like he was 14. Yeah. Right? The other thing was that he was tied to a fence, and it was read like a crucifixion. Yeah. You can't deal with that kind of imagery in this country without getting an incredible amount of attention. Right? It's very true. And but there were other things, as you said, you know, AIDS pushed the, a large part of our community out of the closet. We were more visible than ever before. And AIDS and the movement of ACT UP and the movement of the of the activists who fought our fight for us had done a really amazing job at changing the perception of the homosexual in culture. All of a sudden we were not the frightened uh people who were in a closet and they couldn't stand up for ourselves. We were the people who took over the Food and Drug Administration building to demand that drugs be tested in a quicker way, right? We went, we redefined the image of the homosexual in society. All of a sudden, we were warriors and we were people who were not going to accept anything but a full participation in the democracy in which we lived. Right. So, as you said, but I think that there's that all of those are are reasons that are very valid. There are some reasons that are not as valid. So, for example, you know, Matthew Shepard was white. He was very photogenic. As I said, he was a university student. Right. Mm -hmm. So his murder means something very different. Right. Than a black person or an immigrant or a Latino immigrant. Right. I keep wondering if Matthew Shepard had been black, would he have gotten that kind of attention? I venture to say no. I would certainly agree. <laughs> right? Or a Latino drag queen that goes home with somebody, gets tied to their bed and, and murdered in a bed. That's not a worthy victim in our culture. Matthew no. Shepard was a worthy victim in our culture. And I think that we have to really be careful with that, right? Because one of the crap... Uh, Crimes against uh, the LGBT community have gone a little down over the, since then, right? But crimes against the trans part of our community have gone up. Oh, right, yes. tremendously. So you know, and, tra- and and crimes against trans people of color has gone way up, right? And so you know, it's true that that um, you know, hate crimes against sexual orientation has decreased a little bit. But hate crimes against gender identity have increased. And so I think it's important that we notice that. Well, there's a tremendous, you know, and there's a tremendous call to action now. Um, and I know I have taken very much to it. As I think our community has been made to be aware, you know, to, to, to speak out louder for trans people of color. Because they're, they're the ones, like you said, there was, what, like 16 or 17 black trans women killed last year. That's right. I, be, I bet if I asked my average American, they could not name one or tell me what happened because it's buried in the news. You don't hear about it. You know, our country just turns its back on it. You know, and, and I thought a very powerful moment of this this last year's, um, you know, pride parade, because the parade was not a parade. It was actually a call to action. It was a march. Um, right. They had a, an incredible I still I, ha, I kept it in my phone because it gives me chills. They had a, a, a funeral procession led by a big giant paper mache Marsha P. Johnson. It was like a New Orleans style funeral procession on giant black flags. They had all the names of people of color, trans people of color that had been killed through the years. Mm-hmm. And they had a drum line and all. it was so powerful because it reminded the community, pay attention, pay attention. 
So how, you know, with Laramie, and I'll, and I'll use, I'll use, you know, same thing of my own personal experience of 26 Pebbles, people, I find people will come to me sometimes when I've seen productions of it. And yeah. I remember sitting in a theater and I saw a, a man from this very small town in Alabama who had a very limited life view on things. And he was admittedly telling me this and said, I've never really thought about the gun rights issue in our country uh, ever and thought it was just something that we had to do and fight for. And after seeing this, I think, you know, we got to talk about this. Maybe things got to change. Now, there is not a word about gun rights in my play. It's, uh -huh. it's a town that is is dealing with the effects of what happened there in a community. And and so talk to me about, you know, with something like Laramie uh, or other pieces, you know, inspired by, you know, real events or that use sources. What is it that you find so power that is so powerful for audiences that makes them find some light on issues that they thought they were so resolute on. I think that theater has a higher domain than politics or the social sciences or even religion. Yeah. Because theater traffics in empathy, right? Yeah. The actors, when they're embodying the characters of a play, they, they are uh, committing an act of empathy is what I, the way I like to say. They're committing an act of empathy. Um, and uh, so I think that that is one of the special powers that we have in this art form, right? That the actor is doing on that stage what we are encouraging the audience to do, which is to empathize. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I think that we have a higher, um, a higher domain than politics or social sciences because we address the heart the mind and the spirit at the same time, right? Yeah. We use narrative and stories to do it, right? Stories are one of the most important and effective tools to change hearts and minds. Why? Because, you know, I always say that, that you know, I always think, want to think that the first story started when the cave person went out um, and was drinking water and all of a sudden saw a tiger. And then they took the, uh, a stick that was around and they bit the tiger away. And then, and then they come back into the cave and they tell the rest of the tribe what just happened to them, right? Yeah. The story, that story has a purpose. The purpose is to save lives of the other people that now mm -hmm. know how to defend themselves, right? The purpose of stories today is to continue doing exactly that, is to save lives, you know, to tell us how we are part of this thing we call humanity. What is our common humanity like, right? What have we learned about living on this earth? And how do we share those things that we have learned to help other people survive and live better? I don't know. I think it's a mixture of both of those things. The fact that actors are experts in empathy and the fact that we have stories as our um, tools. Yeah. And I think you add in, you know, the, you add in the idea of, um, you know, theater is a communal event too. And there's something to be said. I know as creators, when we stand in the back of the house and watch, you know, we watch the audience feverishly during previews and everything to, to, to feel the ebb and flow of a play and, you know, and, um, and I think there's something about that communal feeling that when you're sitting in a room of people, you all have different viewpoints from the lives you come into those doors with and the experiences you come in with. And I think something about that communal feeling also allows us to perhaps allow the walls to ease, you know? Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, 
I think so. And I also think exactly what you said, which is, you know, you, you don't know who the person next to you is, right? But you know that they're, that you and that person are laughing at the same things. Yeah. Or crying at the same things, right? Or, and that is an experience that creates community in a very specific way. Right. Oh, that, that's beautiful. I, I've actually never thought of that. That, that. That's I love that. I think that's a motto for everyone out there to listen to in life. It's true. We will all share the same laugh. We will all share the same tears at a moment. And I think that's a reminder that, hey, guys, there's a lot there in common. You know, right. no matter no matter how far apart we all feel right now. Right. Um, so talk to me about gross indecency, because it's been I will admit it's been a minute since I have uh, read this play. But mm-hmm. I was always so fascinating about you taking a story that, you know, not not many of us may know, you know, over here, and that you blended in, you know, the the, the current court documents, other materials to tell this story. Talk to me about that and 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 why the creation of that piece and what you were saying via the piece about what happened, to Oscar. I think yeah. So gross indecency was the three trials of Oscar Wilde, and uh, I started writing the piece because you know being in the theater. I always had this image of Oscar Wilde, right? He was the great uh, comedian. You know, he was the one, he was the court jester. He could, you know, throw words up in the air and have them always come down in the most astonishing way. So I knew that. I knew the man who had written The Importance of Being Earnest, uh, you know, An Ideal Husband. And I knew that that he was brilliant and I knew that he was tried because he was gay. Um, somebody gave me a book called The Wit and Wisdom of Oscar Wilde. And most of the book was a series of epigrams of Oscar Wilde. You know, things like when he got to customs in America, they said, do you have anything to declare? And he said, I have nothing to declare except my genius. You know, <laughs> um, so things like that. And, and yeah. they were delightful and, and brilliant. The last 10 pages of the book, however, were uh, excerpts from the transcripts of the trial of Oscar Wilde. So as I was reading them, um, in the, in one of the things that the, that the prosecution did when they were trying Oscar Wilde for gross indecency, acts of gross indecency with other male persons, was that they read to him from his book, The Picture of Dorian Gray. So in a court of law, the lawyer takes out the novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, and he says to Oscar Wilde, Mr. Wilde, you wrote this book, yes? He says, yes. I'm going to read you a passage from this book, right? And he reads him a passage in which the painter Basil Howard um, is speaking to a young man very lovingly, right? So mm-hmm. he reads this text in a court of law, and then he asks Oscar Wilde, is this text moral or immoral? And I thought, this is one of the most important events of the history of art of the you know 19th century, uh, uh, an artist being asked in a court of law whether or not their art is moral. Yeah. And and, and Oscar Wilde's response was, um, you know, I don't know how to answer that question. You know, I can tell you whether a book is well-written or badly written. And this book is very well-written. You know, there's no such thing as morality or immorality in art. A book is either well-written or badly written. You know, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this is so interesting, right? To give up mind like Oscar Wilde and to put them on the stand and have him talk about the morality of art and the morality of the artistic impulse and the artistic artifact was something that thrilled me. And the more I read, the more I realized that that first trial was a lot about his art. 
I always thought that Oscar Wilde had been tried for being gay. Here was a proof that, yes, that of course he was tried for being gay, but he was also tried for being an artist. The person who was on trial was not only the homosexual, it was the artist. And at the time when I read this, um, the NEA had defunded four major artists because they were considered to be too controversial. Uh, Robert Maplethorpe, um, Karen Finley, and all of a sudden, so this question about the morality or immorality of art was was part of our discourse and part of what was happening to us. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I decided to write the play. The play is the trial of the artist as much as it is the trial of the homosexual. Yeah, we, I mean, the, I mean the, the idea, I guess we don't think about that, you know, the idea that to be tried for your art, to have to defend your art and say if it's moral or immoral, that, that is uh, powerful and frightening stuff. You're right. One of the most consequential moments. I, I can't, may we never come to that right. <laughs> ever. Again, well, may we never come to that again. Again, that, yeah, exactly. Uh, may history not repeat itself on that. You know, between gross indecency and and then, you know, with Laramie. Let me interrupt you, sorry, but you're right. May we never, but you have to remember, Eric, that in many countries of the world, you know, that that is happening on a daily basis, right? Absolutely. Uh, the collection of the Laramie Project in Uganda, and they had to do it in secret. So they would do like private parties where people could see the play because that art is not allowed. Uh, we were going to do a reading of grossing the a production of gross indecency in Russia, and the Kremlin shut it down. So yeah. this idea that um, you know the kind of censorship and the kind of attack on artistic expression is rampant all over the world, right? Yeah. Um, and even in the in the United States, there are many times still today where you know the board of directors of a theater will refuse to do the Laramie Project. Or the board of directors of a of a, a high school will forbid their students from doing the Laramie project. So it's still happening. It's just yeah. happening in different places. Now you you know you're you're not going to perhaps admit to this, but I very much so believe that between gross indecency and Laramie project, and especially with Laramie project, you know, you brought and your team brought to light the story of Matthew Shepard and what had happened, and it went national, it went international, and I find a very tight tie-in to the fact that we have, you know, now the Matthew Shepard Act, you know, between the exposure of this story and that people everywhere knew what happened now and, and, and had a very personal uh, interaction with what happened through the story of this town. And then the elected officials and Dennis and Judy Shepard, we have this act that passed to, to help, you know, save and, and protect LGBTQ people. Um, you know, you even went on to get a 2016 National Medal of Arts by President Barack Obama. Uh, you know, how do you how do you feel about being a, a major voice in the story of the gay rights movement at this point? And 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 where where do you see us going from here? And what do you continue? We continue to push for. That's a great question. I'm going to answer that question in two ways. Yeah. I am going to be modest and say that, that yes, that I think uh, that play had an effect in a kind of national dialogue. Remember, we also made the movie of it. Yeah, of course. For 25 million people. Yeah. When President Barack Obama passed the Matthew Shepard, James Byrd Hate Crime Protection Act, um, 
he invited Tectonic Theater Project to go to the White House for the signing of the bill. Um, mm. And I do believe, you know, that, as we were saying before, theater that has the ability to participate in a national dialogue, mm-hmm. right? It really has the ability to participate in national dialogues. And um, so that is, uh, that is a wonderful thing to remember, right? That we, we can participate in a large scale conversation. You know, the play is still one of the most performed plays in the country and it continues to kind of in, engender certain kind of dialogue. So that is to the power of the art form in which we, we uh, work. Um, in terms of myself personally and where do I see the, the, the battles of the movement, I, I think there's, there's several things that, that, that are, I think are really, really important. Number one is intersectionality, right? That the awareness, right, that that is very different just being a white gay person than it is being a Latino gay person, right? Or a black gay person, right? Um, And how do we think about those kind of intersectionalities? And also, how do we use those intersectionalities to create coalitions with other communities, right? Because I think that that's what we're discovering more and more. That's where the power lies. I mean, one of the reasons the Black Lives Matter one of the reasons the Black Lives uh, Matters movement is so powerful is because it's doing coalitions with all these other communities that are uh, finding themselves part of this of this conversation. Absolutely. So I, I think those are the, the, the major things. I think, as we discussed before, that the trans community uh, is being very heavily attacked and we really have to support our, our trans peers. Um and I think that we are also going to have to be really careful and watchful that with this new Supreme Court justice uh, coming on board, who just described sexual orientation as a preference on national television, you know, that they might want to, you know, turn back some of the legislation that gave us the freedoms that we fought so hard to earn. Yeah. And we, and we find ourselves, you know, it's, it's interesting, the the kind of we're at a moment now where you said where we're finding these alliances and we're and we're reaching out to different communities and, and and if you look back at the history of the gay rights movement i mean the gay rights movement is by many leaders in the movement is modeled on the civil rights movement that the black community was dealing with and then you know and and through the help of our you know latino and, and black trans uh activists that fought on the front lines during it you know we get these uh we get the, the rights we have and then there's a very sad history, of course, of where our community kind of shed them and, and, and no longer paid attention. And to me, we're finally in this moment of due diligence where we are uh, remembering the fact that uh, alliances are the only thing that keep communities going forward. You know, if you're a minority, you stick together. You stick together always because someone will always be trying to strip your rights away. Right. I think that's yeah. correct. Yeah. Um, Moises, look, from the moment I walked in your door, uh, to talk about this play idea ha- I had about Newtown. You were so generous and so kind. And I always attribute, you know, the success of 26 Pebbles that you gave me a great start on it. Uh, thank you again for your kindness and generosity today with all this uh, mm-hmm. as you inspire new generations with your voice.
Thank you, Eric. And thank you for doing this podcast and stay safe and well, okay? All right, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. All right, voter registration deadlines. New York State, New York State. Well, we are past the 9th and 14th, so those are over. Um, Listen, at this point, if you're not a registered voter in 2020, I don't really know what to say to you. I'm hoping you're registered and activated to vote. It is 2020. There is no excuse. There is nothing more unattractive than an unregistered voter in 2020. So let's move on to the last day to have a postmarked request for an absentee ballot. That is October 27th. The last day to do it in person here in New York State is November 2nd. The last day to postmark the absentee ballot and send it in is November 2nd. The last day to drop it off in person, November 3rd, election day. Now, I'm going to say what I say every week because it bears repeating. If you are healthy, if you are feeling safe, if you have left your house with a mask on since March, you're going to show up in person. In fact, you're going to early vote at your polling place and you're going to fill out your ballot and secure it right there, drop it off, and it is safely in the hands of the Board of Elections and not in a post office where Donald Trump can take your vote and have it thrown away. Let us all keep ourselves focused on that. If we can make it out, guys, truly imagine, imagine that evening. Imagine the moment when on that night there is a landslide victory for Joe Biden and we have to watch Donald Trump start to defend mail-in ballots. I want to see that day. We deserve to see that day. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening and don't forget we're here every other week. So go get to work and we can't wait to have you back. Also, please consider making a donation to FairFight at www.fairfight.com. We know when they can't win fairly, they always try to cheat. And Stacey Abrams and FairFight are working hard to ensure that doesn't happen. Do You Hear the People Sing is a production of the Fabulous Invalid LLC and the Broadway Podcast Network. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Kyle Moore. Our theme music is by Brett Ryback. Our photography is by Michael Kushner and our graphic design by Aviva Sakalashahar. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.